Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. Let's review a little bit of last week. We began Ruth 2 last week. And Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem. And there was a man, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech. Who can tell me his name? Boaz. Thank you, Janet. Boaz. That's good. That's fine. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, verse 2, Let me now go to the field. So she wants to go to the field. She wants to glean the corn. My wife was talking to me about this a little bit last week, and I'm trying to remember the exact comment. Um, but I had mentioned last week that part of the, the expectation, we would imagine, is that uh, knowing that there was a, a, a great deal of carnality in Israel, a great deal of wickedness in Israel, um, while it would be expected that all of the farms would allow for the gleaning of this corn, in reality, it seems as though it was something she was hoping she could find, someone that would just allow her to glean the corn, to glean um, what, was, what was left behind. But my wife had mentioned that maybe there was another reason as well. Um, there had just been a famine in the land. And that famine had gone on for quite some time. So much so that Elimelech had taken his family and left and gone to the fields of Moab. And it was not until the time that they heard that the Lord had blessed Bethlehem with bread that they moved back to Bethlehem. So they were coming off of a very large famine and that may have led to some apprehension on the part of some of these farmers to, to make this expectation, this law of gleaning that we talked about, uh, to make it a part of their regular habits again. However, we know that Boaz was one that was more than willing to allow that. And as we talked about Boaz, we, we mentioned his parents. And we went to the book of Matthew and looked at the genealogy of Christ, which I'm, of course, giving away the fact that Boaz is in the genealogy of Christ. But what I was emphasizing was not so much that, but who his parents were. Can anyone remind me who Boaz's parents were? Uh, nope, not, not Moses. Evan. His, his mother, and that was the point we were getting at, was Rahab. Uh, father was Solomon. Mother was Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Rahab of Jericho. Rahab the Canaanite. Rahab the Jerichoite. Rahab the lady who hid the spies. That Rahab was Boaz's mother. We talked about the, the story of redemption found even in that, that she had found not only a home in Israel, but her son had become a mighty man of wealth in Bethlehem, Judah. We saw the interaction between Boaz and his servants, between Boaz and Ruth, recognizing that Boaz had already heard about Ruth. He'd already heard about her virtue. He'd already heard about the fact that she had come back with Naomi, that um, she did not need to, but she did anyway. He was already impressed. He speaks to her. She's extremely humble. 
she, when, when he offers to protect her, when he offers to provide for her, she falls down upon her face before him. She's humble before him. She asks, why have you shown such grace, such favor to me? And he says in verse 12, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. He says, you have come to trust in the Lord, and your actions have exhibited that trust. The fruit of your life is the fruit of a woman that fears the Lord. Turn with me to Proverbs 31, please. Proverbs 31 introduces itself as the words of King Lemuel, the prophet that his mother, the prophecy, excuse me, that his mother taught him. So Lemuel's mother taught him this. And we often speak of the Proverbs 31 woman. Verse 10 says, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that she shall have, need, shall have no need of spoil, so that he shall have no need of spoil, excuse me. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. He goes on to speak of um, the industriousness of the virtuous woman. Look at verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. And then verse 30. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And that's what we are seeing here. We are seeing Boaz who is praising a woman who fears the Lord. This is a woman who did not just come alongside Naomi and say, well, I'm not really on board with you, but but I'm going to stick with you anyway. This is a woman who has made Jehovah her God. And the actions that she is taking the way she's treating her mother-in-law, the way she is caring for her mother-in-law, going out in the fields and working all day to provide for her and for her mother-in-law, the way she reacted to Boaz, the humility that she has reflected in her actions and in her speech are reflections of a virtuous woman. Proverbs 30, 31-30 uh, tells us that that woman shall be praised. And here Boaz is saying, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. And we recognized what was happening here. We recognized the amazing events whereby Boaz is recognizing the opportunity that he has to redeem this young lady. And how worthy she is of that redemption. Look at verse 13. Then she said, that's Ruth, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. And Boaz said unto her, at mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached uh, her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed. 
and left. Parched corn, this was a roasted grain of wheat. It's something that we see as being a part of the meal offering in Leviticus 21. It, was, it still is, in fact, a characteristic meal in the Middle East as well as um, this bread and vinegar, uh, dipping it in the vinegar. These are, these are still characteristic of some of the food of the Middle East. He was inviting her to regain her strength, to come in and, and receive some sustenance at his hand. Verse 15, And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her, not, let her glean among the sheaves, and reproach her not, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them, that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. This is beyond just generous, folks. This is beyond just Boaz being generous. This is, this is more purposeful than that. This is something particular. This is a signal. This is him saying, I, I feel some responsibility here. Handfuls of purpose is a very interesting way to describe this. Literally, he's saying, don't just let her glean from the outskirts. Let her walk behind you as you're harvesting. And you know what? Drop some. Drop some purposefully so that she may glean it. I think Boaz here was really beginning to see that he was going to be able to be a part of the blessing that he had just blessed Ruth with in verse 12. That as he said, the Lord recompense thy work, he was beginning to see that he could be a part of that recompense. Proverbs 3 verse 27 tells us to withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of our hands to do it. Here was a young lady who was working hard, providing for herself and for her mother-in-law. And he was making sure that he was not withholding good from those to whom it was due. Verse 18, And she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was spiced. By the way, an ephah of barley would have been about 20 to 25 pounds of wheat. Of barley. And um, when we recognize that she had um, gleaned and then beat it out, and then taken that which she had beat out and brought it together, um, she, she had a good day in the field. And Naomi would have noticed this. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Now, notice she says that he has been kind to the living and to the dead. Why did she say that? Why do you think she said that he has been kind both to the living and to the dead? His kindness not only reflected upon Ruth, but it reflected back to Naomi in his providing for her, and it reflected back upon his kinsmen, 
Elimelech, who has now passed away, and Malon and Kilion, who have now passed away. She says that his kindness was extending even to them in that he is providing for these widows. These women who have no other means of sustaining themselves. All of the men who would be providing for them are dead. And so she says that he has been kind both to the living and to the dead. And notice then she says, the man is the near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. This word kinsman in the Hebrew is literally the word redeemer. Don't think that Naomi didn't understand what was going on here. And don't think that Boaz didn't know what was going on here either. They recognized what the deal was. Boaz knew full well that he was of the family of Elimelech. Naomi knew that Boaz was of the family of Elimelech. And she says here that he is one of our next kinsmen. He is one of our next redeemers. The word is redeemer. She is thinking about redemption here. She is anticipating the opportunity that Ruth might have to be redeemed. Verse 21. Actually, before we do that, please turn with me to Leviticus 25. We see uh, some expectation of redemption here in Leviticus 25. In verse 24 it says, If thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. Look, uh, turn with me to verse 48. Verse 47, excuse me. And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or the stock of the stranger's family, after that he hath sold, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him, either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be able, he may redeem Himself. So we see this concept of redemption. We've already talked about the leveret marriage. We'll talk a little bit more about redemption as we get a bit farther of, of the redemption in the, in the marriage context. We've talked about it already. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, as we move along. But what we're seeing here is the expectations of God for redemption. That people's possessions, that people's inheritance would remain within the family and that God has established these means by which one can redeem another. And, and Naomi says, this man is a redeemer. This man is one of our redeemers. She sees it. Verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean, excuse me, until the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. So she is living with her mother-in-law, providing for her mother-in-law, and she is daily going out to the field of Boaz, not going anywhere else, and she's staying by the maidens of Boaz and is gleaning for herself. Chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? This isn't as much a question as it may look sometimes in the King James. Um, she is saying here, 
I, I need to seek rest for you. I'm going to seek rest for you. I see an opportunity here to find rest for you. This idea of rest being that of comfort, that of provision, that of something long-term. There's some long-term provision that she's thinking here. And she says, And now is not Boaz of our kindred, and whose maidens, uh, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. The threshing floor when the barley and the wheat harvest, when these harvests were coming complete, they would take a portion of their land and the servants would tamp it down very hard, make it very flat, make it very hard. It would be an open air area and they would generally circle that area with stones. And so there would be a designated threshing floor, tamped down hard, and they would take the wheat and the barley and they would put it into this threshing floor area and they would bring animals in and the first step would be to have the animals walk across this barley, walk across these wheat stalks and as they did so it would break the, the, the grains off from the stalks and then slowly as it continued to walk around them uh, it, would, it would separate the husk from the grain and that's what they were going for. And so they would do this with all of their wheat and all of their, their barley and all the grains and they would get to the point where uh, on the ground was this separation and then they would what was called winnow the barley and winnow the wheat, winnow the grain. And they would take that grain and they would toss it up in the air. And as they tossed it up in the air, this is why they wanted an open area, the wind would catch it. But of course the grain was too heavy for the wind to catch so the, wind, the grain would fall back to the ground onto the threshing floor but the chaff, the husk, that light part would blow away. And in doing so they would be able to easily separate the husk from the grain and then they could uh, spend the rest of the time picking out whatever uh, rest of the elements of impurities there would be in it and then they would bind it up together. This is the process that Boaz had been going. It's right at the very end of the, of the harvest right at the very end of everything, Boaz is jumping in, uh, he's, he's becoming a part of this. And so because of this, he did not go back to his house that evening. And that may have been a part of the reason why Naomi had waited till the end of the harvest for this. Maybe she was hoping that Boaz would approach Ruth in this regard, but he did not. And so when Naomi says, okay, uh, I, I, uh, should I not seek your rest? Should I not seek your comfort? She sees an opportunity here because Boaz isn't going into his house. He's going to sleep on the threshing floor that evening. He's going to stay. We recall that, that his farm would have been outside of Bethlehem proper, outside of the city. And he's going to stay at his farm that evening. So she gives Ruth instruction. Now it's a little too low. Okay, so she gives Ruth instruction. Wash thyself therefore and anoint thee and put thy raiment upon thee and get thee down to the floor but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking and it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. And so the command is for her to um, get clean, anoint herself so that she'd smell good, um, put on some nice clothes, and get down to this floor, not to make herself known to him, but to let him eat, to let him drink, to let him go to bed, and then she is to uncover his feet and lie down at his feet. She says, I'll do it. 
So verse 6, And she went down unto the floor and did according to all her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. She came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. So he had eaten. He had, uh, he, he'd had his meal. Um, he was very content. He lies down with the grain to sleep. She comes, she uncovers his feet, and she lays down at the end of his feet. Now this was fine. This was not something that was um, wrong or indecent or anything of the sort. It was a request. And we're going to see how that request plays out in just a moment. He probably turns in the middle of the night, shifts his weight, and his feet don't shift with him. Or he shifts his weight and his foot kicks something that doesn't feel like grain. And he wakes up and he looks down at his feet. The, the scriptures, the, the Hebrew says that he turned himself or he, he sat up and he sees a woman laying at his feet. He says, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. And she asks, spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. This word skirt literally means uh, the ends or a wing or a skirt. Um, what she's asking is that he would become her protector. Oftentimes in the scriptures, we've even already seen the analogy in, in chapter 2, verse 12, that Boaz says, May the Lord recompense thy work under whose wings thou art come to trust. You have come to trust under the protection of the Lord. You have come to trust under the protection of Jehovah God. And here she says, spread thy skirt over me. That same idea of protection. Give me your protection. Let me enter into your redemption. Spread thy skirt over me. For thou art a near kinsman. That same word, thou art a goel is the Hebrew word, a redeemer. You're, you're a redeemer. Would you be willing to redeem me? Notice Boaz's response in verse 10. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz is saying this, Ruth, you could have had a younger man, whether poor or rich, whatever the case may be, you could have, you could have gone back to Moab and found a husband. You could have come to Israel and found a husband. But you didn't. Your kindness is greater on this day. Your goodness, your virtue is greater on this day than on the day that you decided to go with Naomi out of Moab into Israel. Your goodness is better today. Your virtue is better in this decision than simply when you made the decision to come with your mother-in-law and to cleave to her. Why, why would this be? What, what was Boaz thinking here when he said, you have showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, now than then, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. Does anyone know where he's going with this? Why would, why would this expression, her desire for redemption, show a great kindness. 
The law of the levirate marriage, as we've talked about it, is that if a woman's husband dies, it would be the responsibility of the brother or the kinsman to raise up seed. However, what we see here is, is Ruth not being under that obligation. She is not under the obligation to enter into a levirate marriage. Nor does she really have the ability, in a manner of speaking, to, you know, Naomi's sons are dead, so she didn't have the ability through Naomi to enter into this levirate marriage. She, she didn't have to seek out a kinsman redeemer. And as we look at the field, we're going to see here in, in just a little bit, as we look at those who, we probably won't get there tonight, who are capable of redeeming her, it seems as though they are more mighty men of wealth in the city. Why is that? Well, we don't exactly know um, why it would fall to the kinsmen of Elimelech. Um, I guess probably because Boaz's children or uh, any of the near kinsmen's children, had they had any, would still be one step farther away from redemption than if you trace the line from Malon and Kilion to Elimelech to Boaz to those other kinsmen in that regard. And so Boaz is praising her because instead of just going and finding herself a husband, she is patiently requesting and humbly requesting that she enter into the levirate marriage of the kinsman redeemer. And I'd like to take a few moments and talk about Ruth here. We've been building up the reality of Ruth's virtue. And she is indeed a virtuous woman. And I'd like to talk about virtue, about love, and about our culture for a few moments this evening. Particularly, and we, we talked about this a little bit um, in our last series as well, but particularly for young ladies in this culture, feminism and the women's liberation movement has placed blinders over women in regard to not just their role in society and in the home and in the family, but it has also confused women in regard to what it means to have love and to be loved by another. I don't know if you've ever um, been able to see young ladies, um, preteen to those teen years, 12 to 18, as they interact, uh, the, the, the customary uh, girls in the world as they interact. But what society is teaching young ladies, or girls, I guess young ladies is probably not the best term for them, but what society is teaching young girls today is that attention equals love. Is that love is found through, through catching a person's eye, through getting their attention, and that love is maintained through keeping their attention. That love is found in things such as gifts. That love um, is obtained through compromising oneself. 
I told you about the door knocking that Dee and I did a couple weeks ago, uh, not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before. And uh, as we were leaving, there was a, a group of, of girls and a group of boys, all probably about 13, 14, that were out goofing around in the street. And uh, as I went up to them, I said, good evening. And the girls acted like they didn't even understand English. What? Well, good evening. What? Good evening. Oh, yeah. Giggle, giggle, giggle. And this is how they acted. And one would say, wow, you know, weird. It's pretty, uh, pr- pretty strange way they were acting. Must be, must be an, a one-time thing, right? I'm not going to go down the street and find other girls that act that way. I'm not going to go across the country and find other girls that act that way. Well, when my friend and I were evangelizing in Colorado, I can tell you that the junior high, high school age girls that we interacted with were the exact same way. Society is training up girls to seek to win men. Well, it's the same way they've always done it, but they're coming at it from a different angle. To seek to win men through acting foolish, through their bodies, and through elevating the men to some status symbol where they feel really good about themselves by how dumb the girls are acting. This is what society is training into young ladies, to girls. Here we see a woman. who has forsaken that which even culture would allow her in order to choose a path that would best provide not just for her, but for her mother-in-law. Here we see a woman who has the strength and the virtue to get out and to work, to show herself a woman of industry, and then when it comes time for her to be provided for, she pursues that which is best in the eyes of God and not ju- that which is best in the eyes of man. Oftentimes when my wife and I would be counseling uh, people in college, we would encourage them as they were seeking a spouse and um, looking for you know, various aspects and, and degrees of relationships, that they would be very particular to understand the character of the people that they were interacting with. And the reason why in a Christian college environment is, as I used to tell guys, any girl can look good behind a khaki skirt. Any guy can look good in a suit and a tie. But those external elements of what we are and who we are do not dictate the internal heart for God. They don't. And so as we seek love, we need to remember that love is a choice. We need to remember that God's best is better than my idea of what might be best for me. That God's best is what is best. And as we look at a woman like Ruth, we recognize that she did not have to get off the path of following the Lord and what God had 
expected in the law in order to find a man that would fulfill the necessities of caring for her. Society says if you want to find a husband or a wife, if you want to find that perfect person, then you go out and you seek and you adapt and you get. But here we see a a young lady who waited, who saw God's will, and who, in waiting on God's timing, found what we'll find out will be something very special. God had something very special planned for her. And look how Boaz responds to her in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people knowest that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. He says, it's true, I am your near kinsman. And don't worry. The whole city knows that you're a virtuous woman. The whole city knows that you are a worthy addition to the nation of Israel. Don't worry. You will be redeemed. He says, Stay here tonight. Tarry this night. And it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the the part of the kinsman well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of the kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of the kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. So he says, Stay here. And don't worry. If he won't do it, I will do it. There's one before me. He needs to receive the first opportunity, but if he won't do it, I will. And he says, as the Lord liveth, he vows unto the Lord here. This is, this is a vow to the Lord. It will get done. Verse 14, And she lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another, and said, Let it not be known that a woman, and he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the floor. So for testimony's sake, he says, leave before so that people don't get the wrong idea. Also he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and, be, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and he laid it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, these six measures of barley gave he me. For he said to me, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then she said, Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest till he have finished the thing this day. And so he sent these six measures of barley as a token. As a token to Naomi that, look, I am going to begin to provide for you. And I will provide for you either until this Redeemer takes over for me or I will redeem her myself. Either way, do not worry. Ruth is provided for and you are provided for. And she has sought rest and found it in this man, Boaz. I cannot stress enough this is oftentimes spoken of as one of the greatest love stories in history. And it receives that with various other um, love stories, Romeo and Juliet, that sort. But when we talk about a biblical love story, when we talk about a love story that is, is traced along the lines of what God would have, a virtuous woman, a godly man, 
and these two people who are seeking God's will and God's best and are not seeking themselves but one for one another. That is why this story is so precious. And so whereas you have something like Romeo and Juliet, which is said to be a tragedy, really it's just choices and consequences, that's, that may be the world's concept of what a great love story is. But you know what a great love story is when we think of the definition of love? is selfless, virtuous, godly men and women seeking God's best and not their own. And that's why this story is so special. We'll pick up in chapter 4 next week and we should finish. And we will um, put some of the last pieces together. I wasn't expecting to get all the way through chapter 3, but we did. We'll put some of these last pieces together and then... Um, we will move on from there. Are there